Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Well, it is good to be back. I want to say thanks to Abe Phillip uh, last week. He uh, did a great job just sharing the word, and we're blessed to have him as one of our elders. Praise God for, uh, for Abe. But I'm so excited to be with you today. I was extremely excited, though, to be able to get away and spend a week uh, just with my family. Last week, I hope, was a great week of Thanksgiving for you. For the Brooks family, it was a time of travel. We decided to take a road trip, kind of spontaneous, it took us to three different states and a number of stops in between all were wonderful. But maybe the highlight of our trip last week was our annual pilgrimage to our favorite indoor water park. You know, when you live in a state like Michigan, you got to visit indoor water parks during uh, the wintertime. But you would be amazed at how many sermon illustrations come from an indoor water park when you're a pastor. And so I was there and paying attention to everything that was going on, and my kids love it all, but out of all the attractions that were there, they were probably most drawn to the wave pool. How many have ever been in a wave pool before? Anybody ever experienced that? Well, I got a great sermon illustration from it, because if you've been in a wave pool, you know that there's a calm before the storm uh, to say. There is this sense of stillness and calm. It feels pretty tame and uneventful before the waves come, but when they release the the waves. Everybody in the pool moves from little kids to big adults. And I even got turned upside down once or twice, but nobody got it on video. So I'm okay. But it was a great time. And my kids learned a powerful lesson. They learned about the power of water to move you. And I was reminded of that. But I also was reminded of what the apostle Paul has been teaching us through the book of Romans about the power of the life in the spirit. And in many ways, it is the same. It is a movement that is happening. It is an unstoppable movement of the gospel when we have put our faith and our trust in him. And what Paul wants us to know is that when God is at work in our lives, there is movement that is happening and he promises to take us from foreknowing, for loving, calling us, justifying us, all the way home to ultimate redemption and glorification he will keep every promise and he will allow us to experience the fulfillment of our salvation in Christ Jesus. How many thank God for his faithfulness and know that he is trustworthy? But so often when we talk about salvation mistake that many of us as pastors or preachers make is to talk about salvation in a transactional way. That, that it's almost a matter of just simply checking the box. But let me just say clearly, as we were singing the songs that we sang today, my greatest prayer is that you would know that the greatest gift that we receive from God in salvation is him. It's a relationship with him. I think about this generation as a, as a parent and as a father, and I say to myself as I pray for my children, like, man, how overwhelming is it? And we often as parents or grandparents say that this generation is facing things that we never could imagine. I couldn't imagine having to concentrate on my schoolwork and studies while living through a pandemic. 
I, don't, I didn't know what it was like to grow up in a generation that knew more despair and hopelessness than they did hope. I, I don't know what it's like to be a teenager growing up in a generation that sees both self-harm and suicide on the rise in every state in our country as a whole. But this is the moment that many of our children are living through and we are trying to raise them. And the fact of the matter is, as parents, we all know there are so many hours that we can be with our kids and, and it's not enough. I, I can't be with my kids for every minute of every day. And I also recognize that they're only gonna be in my house for only so many years. But the greatest thing that I can give to them, the greatest thing I can encourage them to do is to lean on Jesus. It is to turn to Jesus. How do you navigate through despair and not give in to the nihilism of the moment? How do you navigate through the challenges of our culture? It is to look to him because in Christ, we have not only salvation, but we have hope and we have peace and we have a promise of redemption and salvation and his love sustains us and that's what Paul wants us to see and that's what I pray that we would see today as we look at Romans chapter 8 I want you to turn there with me what Paul has been doing almost like a master litigator is building a case for faith in Christ why should we believe? And the answer is, it's because of these promises. Again, the promises that uh, we have been given of salvation, the promise of hope, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of mercy and grace. We all need these things. There's not a soul among us that does not need these things in abundance. If you know what it's like to experience failure or disappointment or loss or pain, you know what it's like to need a savior and Christ puts Jesus on full display. Uh, Paul puts Jesus on full display throughout his writing in Romans. And as he's making this case, he's presenting evidence to us on why we should believe. Exhibit A is the finished work of the cross. We should believe because Christ accomplished everything that we would ever need for salvation on the cross of Calvary. Exhibit B is the empty tomb, that the resurrection power of God that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and I today to give us overcoming power and strength to sustain us as well. Exhibit C is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is the guaranteed deposit for our ultimate redemption and future salvation and glorification. Uh, Abe described it last week as the golden chain of salvation. You see it in Romans 8, 29 through 30, where Paul talks about God for knowing us. And I, I love this thought of uh, thinking of foreknowledge for loving us, loving us. And then, and then he predestined us, but he didn't just predestine us. He called us and he didn't just call us, but he justifies us. And he doesn't just justify us, but he promises that ultimately he will glorify us. How many believe that? How many believe that, that God is faithful to do that? And I hope you do believe. But now what Paul is about to do with these last eight verses of Romans 8 is about to make his closing argument. This closing argument is his last opportunity to drive home what it means to be in Christ and our identity in Christ. And his, his summation of it all, his ultimate point is that we are conquerors 
Because of the God who loves us. We are conquerors, not because of us. We overcome the disappointment, the pain, the attacks of living in a fallen world. And we overcome even the war that the wicked one will wage against us, not because of us, but because of the God who loves us. If we are in Christ and his spirit is in us, we are more than conquerors. And Paul is going to make that case. And what is beautiful and brilliant about his literary style is he's going to do it by using rhetorical questions. Now, as a speaker, the whole purpose of a rhetorical question is to draw you back in because every speaker knows that people tend to drift. They tend to drift. And so you ask a question to pull them back in, even though you know what the answer is already. And so today, Paul is going to ask us three very important questions. But he starts with this preface question in verse number 31. And I don't want us to miss this. Here's the question. What then shall we say to these things? What's going to be our response to these things? Now, what are these things? It is all that Paul has been arguing throughout the book of Romans of who we are and what we receive in Christ, the hope that we receive in Christ, the peace that we receive because the war between us and God is over because of Jesus, the eternal salvation we receive. What will your response be to these things? How will you respond to the gospel You know, many of us know we desperately need something more than ourselves. We know that we need a savior. And my advice, my encouragement to you today is not to get this close to the mercy and the love of God and to miss it. So Paul's question to you and to me is, what shall we say to these things? My hope is that we will say yes and amen. My hope is that we would say, Lord, save me now. My hope is that we would say, I believe in Jesus, I trust you. But then he goes on to ask a very important question, the the next rhetorical question here. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is a military question. What he is asking is, what foe or what enemy can mount such an attack against us that it will cause us to be overwhelmed? What enemy or foe can mount such an attack, has such an arsenal in their artillery that they would be able to overcome us? Well, I think we can just come to a conclusion or surmise an answer simply by the way he words the question. He words the question with this clause, if God is for us, if God is on our side, here's the question, who can be against us? How many know the answer? The answer is an emphatic no one. No one is powerful enough to overcome us. Now, here's what Paul does, though, that I love. He recognizes that we live in what theologians call the already but not yet. There is a promise of ultimate redemption, but the reality of this moment is that I still live in a fallen world, and Paul doesn't deny the hope of the promise or the reality of the moment. And critical to understanding this whole passage is verse number 36, where he acknowledges the difficulty of this world. In verse number 36, he says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Here he quotes the Old Testament. But why do that? Why, why bring up this uh, sense of dis, uh, despair or attack or devastation in the midst of hope and promise? It's for a reason. It's not by mistake. What Paul wants to do as a realist is acknowledge that, yes, death is real. Death is a foe that many of us fear the most. Many of us fear the most that, that somehow we will either die ourselves or lose someone we love and think that we won't be able to survive that. But what Paul wants us to know is that even death is not strong enough to overcome the sustaining power and love of the Father. That's what we just sang about. No love is greater. No love is stronger. No, one is, no love is higher than the faithful love of our Father. His love sustains us. And Paul wants us to know that even in the face of death, God is faithful. How many of us have been there before? How many of us have faced something that we thought that, man, if I ever lost this, I don't know if I can make it. Maybe it's resources. There's been many of us who have said, man, I don't know if I can survive a season of a lack of resources. And then you go through a season where you don't have as much resources as you used to have. And then you discover that somehow, some way, God makes a way that God provides for you. Has anybody ever been there before? And God somehow miraculously allows not only ends to meet, but there's abundance. And you say, what was I afraid of? God is just as faithful in this as he was in my season of abundance. I know what it's like to lose somebody you love. And many of us, that's the fear, is that if I lose this person, how will I be able to make it? Then you go through that moment and you realize that somehow, some way, not because of your strength, not because of your might, but because of his sustaining grace, you are able to not only survive it, but here you are today giving God the glory and able to praise God on the other side of it. Why? It's because he is a God who sustains and he promises that no one can come against us in a way that will overwhelm us if God is for us. He doesn't want us to be afraid. And here's the thing that you need to remember that David says is he is not just a God of the mountaintop, but yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. I will fear no evil because he is with me. He is the God of the mountaintop, but he is also the God of the valley, and he is faithful. Praise God for his faithfulness. So the question, who can be against us? Who can overcome us? Who can overwhelm us? The answer is no one. And why? It's because of verse number 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what he just said? What he just said there is that God has already given the highest price. He gave his son the most difficult thing for a parent to do, the highest price he paid already for your salvation to be secure. And how will he not, if he paid that price, give us everything else we need? He'll give us the peace we need. He'll give us the joy we need. He'll give us the grace we need. Because he's arguing from greater to lesser. 
What he is saying is that if he's willing to pay this high of a price, then know that whatever else comes your way, he's more than willing to take care of it. I think about it a few months ago, earlier this year, uh, we came as a church and we rallied around this initiative to raise funds so that we can send resources to buy ventilators for our, our partners in India, these much-needed ventilators at the height of COVID. And there was a pretty high price to pay, but we did it and we sent ventilators and it helped to sustain lives. Now, most of those ventilators got there pretty easy, but some of them were coming from another country, coming from China, and they got held up in customs. And I remember our team coming to me saying, hey, there's an extra price we're going to have to pay in order to get it out of customs. Are we going to do that? And the answer is absolutely. If we paid the high price to purchase them, of course we're going to pay the smaller price for the tariff to get them out or whatever customs charges to get them out. And so it is. If God is willing to sacrifice his own son for our salvation, then everything else, everything else we need, he will supply for us. I want you to get this image in your mind and never forget this, that no matter what comes your way, that God is extending to you in every distress, in every situation, a cup of his sustaining grace. Now, whether or not you or I drink from his cup of grace and receive the sustaining grace is our choice. But he is always offering us grace to sustain us no matter what may come our way. Who can overwhelm us? Who can be against us? If God is for us, the answer is no one. Then in verse number 33, he asks the next rhetorical question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Now he's taking us from the military to the courtroom. If God is for us, who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? Now, what he wants us to think about in this moment is who will be able to mount such a case against us that it will cause God to change his mind about us? If we are in Christ, is there anything that Satan, our adversary, our enemy, our accuser can present about us that will cause God to raise his cosmic gavel in heaven and declare us condemned and reverse his decision on saving us? The answer again is no one can do that. Think about it for just a moment. Imagine in the courtroom of heaven, uh, Satan walking in to, to present his case against you, the prosecution, and imagine him presenting every cringe-worthy thing you have ever done, every deed that you are embarrassed to talk about, every vile word that you have ever spoken. And if that wasn't enough, imagine if after that he plays a reel of every thought you have ever thought before the courtroom of heaven. How many are already getting a little bit uneasy? All of us would feel so in that moment, so ashamed. And it would be almost easy for us to think that a case like that would be so persuasive that surely God would have to condemn us. But I want you to see the logic of Paul of why we should not be afraid. Why is it? It is because God who justifies, it is God who justifies, who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Do you see what he just did? He just filled out the picture of the courtroom. See, it's not just me or you and Satan on the other side in the courtroom, but no, the judge is God the Father sitting on that bench and he's already ruled in our favor. How many praise God for that? But if that wasn't good enough, our defense attorney is Jesus who has already died for us and who is making intercession for us. So after Satan mounts all of his case and presents all the things that we actually did do, Jesus, our attorney, stands up and he doesn't say a word. He just simply lifts those nail-scarred hands. And all of the court knows that the price has already been paid for every sin we ever committed and there is no double jeopardy in the courtroom of heaven. Praise God, who the Son of Man has set free is truly free indeed. There is no sin on earth that you and I can commit that is greater than what Jesus did on Calvary. So who can mount a charge against us who are God's elect? No one because of what Jesus has done for us on Calvary. If that wasn't good enough, he goes on to ask a third question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, if the first question was a military question and the second question was a legal question, this is a family question. I've been adopted into the family of God. And the question is, is, am I secure in his love? Is there anything that can separate me from his love? And what Paul does, he asks this question because he knows, he knows our nature and he knows that there are times when I am so mistreated by people that I wonder, God, do you love me? And if you even remove people from the equation, he also knows there are times when I go through certain circumstances and challenges in life where I question, God, do you love me? And what Paul wants to do once and for all is settle in our minds that he loves us no matter what comes our way, no matter what challenges come our way, no matter what disappointments come our way, no matter what adversities come our way. What Paul wants us to know is that God loves us and nothing or no one will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Think about what it must have meant to be a first century follower of Jesus. That just by professing him, you become a social outcast. You become an economic pariah. You become somebody who is worthy of persecution. You become a religious minority as soon as you say, no, Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is Lord. But that's just not a point of history. That's a point of reality even now. In many parts of the world, people are experiencing this type of persecution or living in these type of conditions all because of their faith or because the world is broken because of sin, yearning for redemption. But what Paul wants us to know is that even in those conditions, God loves you, he sees you, and his love will never fail to sustain us. So what does he want us to say? When tribulation comes, does God love me? Yes. When distress comes, does God love me? Yes. 
When persecution comes, does God love me? Yes. What about famine? What about nakedness? What about danger? What about sword? Yes, he loves me even in this. And sometimes, sometimes the trial comes just to prove how faithful he is so that I can stand and say to you and before not only all of the church, but before all of the world, that no matter what comes my way, God has proven to be faithful. His love sustains, and I'm a living witness of his grace. Anybody else out there a living witness of his grace and his goodness? This is why the redeemed of the Lord have to say so. Uh, what Satan doesn't want is for uh, us to talk about our testimony. He wants us to be quiet. There are certain times when I pray for people and I say, Lord, move on their behalf because you know if you do, they won't keep quiet. They will tell the world about it. How many have made a decision that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. How many have made a decision that you're gonna testify of his goodness and grace to all who will listen? You will tell them of the greatness of our God. Well, he goes on to say, what if it's just not conditions? What if it's the behavior of people? Again, verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting the Old Testament there. And again, it causes us to pause and to say, even in the face of death, is that enough to separate us from the love of Christ? But then Paul responds with some of the most powerful and poetic words you will ever read in all of the New Testament. Look at his closing argument. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many praise God that we are secure and that his love is for us. And sometimes you may say to yourself, I don't feel it. Well, here's the things, uh, thing about feelings is that they will follow what you know. And there are times when you have to get ahead of your emotions. Don't let your emotions be your masters. Here's the truth, and you need to know this about your emotions. Emotions make great servants, but very poor masters. Don't let your emotions dictate your praise. There are certain times when I'm not feeling it, but I start praising God, and the next thing you know, my emotions catch up to the truth of God's word and his promises. You stand on the truth of his word. Can anything separate you from the love of God? You already have his eternal word on it. It is absolutely not. And what makes this so powerful in my heart and hopefully yours as well is who wrote it. It was the apostle Paul who experienced all of these things. He knew what it was like to be stoned almost to death. He knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to be in prison. He knew what it was like to be beaten with stripes. He knew what it was like to be on the run. He knew what famine was like. He knew what nakedness was like. But through it all, he saw that, to, for, that, that Christ and his love was sustaining for us and that what he gained in Jesus was greater than anything he lost in this world. So put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. And so how do we end 
We go back to verse 31 and we look at the question we started with. What then shall we say to these things? People everywhere desperately need Jesus. No question about that. People in this room, people watching this uh, message need Jesus. So my question to you is not whether or not you need mercy or grace or salvation or forgiveness or love, because I know you do. My question is simply, will you look to Jesus today, the only one who can satisfy your heart and give your soul what it desperately needs? Today, I encourage you, don't get this close to his offer of salvation and miss it. But today, as you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your heart. Those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. And there's two types of people in this room, those who have not called upon him. And today, I wanna make it really simple for you to simply cry out to him, Lord, save me now, and he will. But the second type of person in this room those who have called upon him, how many have put your trust in him? How many have already trusted in Jesus? Well, my challenge to you today is to open your mouth and tell this good news. Tell it to your neighbor, to your friend, to those that God puts in your pathway until all have heard, until Christ returns. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to close in worship today. And as our praise team comes to close us in worship, I'm just asking if you're watching online for you to respond just by typing connect. And uh, one of our team members will follow up with you. It's been so awesome to see so many come to faith in Christ through, uh, through our online and digital ministries. But if you're here in the room and you need prayer, our leadership will be here to pray with you. You don't have to go through this journey alone. When you give your life to Jesus, you not only get a savior, but you get a spiritual family who walks with you through the challenges of life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that your word is true, that your promises are faithful. We thank you that today you have presented, Lord, an unassailable case for why we should have faith in Christ. And so how do we answer these things? How do we respond? We say we believe, we trust you. Even in the hard things, we know that you are faithful. So Lord, move in hearts today as only you can. It's in Christ's name I pray. And all God's people said a big amen. amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.